Thank you. Good evening. Uh, just a quick question. Who in here, we're celebrating August birthdays. Who in here has an August birthday that we're celebrating? Can I see a raised hand? Will, Grandma Dawn, Russ, who else? Max, that's right. Carson, okay, quite a few, okay. So what we're gonna do, a little bit different, I was informed is we're gonna sing to everybody here and then eat cake right away um, because the ladies are tired of trying to corral us all to sing. Um, and I think it's a brilliant idea. So we're, we're gonna try that. So if I go to walk off here uh, without doing that, everyone can stop me and uh, tell me to, to stop and we have to sing first. Uh, just something I saw in the scripture that I'm implementing right now in delegation. And uh, we're gonna look at that a little bit tonight. And so you all are now responsible uh, for reminding me. We looked a little bit this morning at uh, Ezra, uh, this, this man, and uh, uh, really what a, what a great character to look at, uh, a great person to learn a lot from. Uh, we mentioned a number of things about Ezra. Uh, he wasn't a king. Uh, he wasn't a prophet. Um, he was a priest, but he didn't have the usual things that we would see in the Old Testament and how they would commune with God. Ezra was a man that knew the word of God, that had made it his, his heart's goal not only to know it, but to do it, and then to teach it. And in this goal, he wanted to see a spiritual revival in Israel. Uh, there was one problem. He was in Babylon, and he had to get to Israel. And so he convinces the king uh, through, through the hand of God to give him the authority and the ability to go back to Jerusalem and to basically do whatever is needed and required uh, to continue the sacrifices and, and the holy uh, living that the scriptures dictate. So Ezra was given uh, great power, really, in, in everything that the king had written, and he was given an opportunity to basically say, any Jew that wants to go back to Israel can go back. Now, it had been 80 years since the first return under Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, and there were 50,000 that decided to go back. Uh, there were those that remembered perhaps what it was like in Jerusalem before they got to Babylon, and they had a desire in their heart to return, to see the temple rebuilt, to see the sacrifices begin, to, to go back to the place where the Lord had given uh, to put his name. We're 80 years removed from that day, and uh, we're going to look at this passage in Ezra chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, Ezra chapter 8, uh, no surprises this, or this evening. We're going to look, and it's going to give an account of all those that returned, uh, all those that returned under Ezra. And we're going to notice a few things uh, that had changed in 80 years uh, amongst the people. And uh, we're going to take that, and we're going to reflect in our own lives and we're going to try to apply this as we go along. Uh, we're not just reading this for some head knowledge. Uh, we're reading this to see how these people related to God, how God dealt with these people, and to try to understand how God is dealing in our own lives and what he's asking us to do. Uh, we thought a little bit this morning about our purpose, um, what God has given us as a calling to do. And we've been thinking on it through the past couple weeks from the teaching from the platform here. What has God equipped us with? And what is the work he's placed in front of us? Um, what are the gifts that we each have? And how are we supposed to use them to encourage and edify the body here? Uh, to preach to the lost, to encourage the saints, and to really see the Lord lifted up 
and exalted. Uh, that's the ultimate goal. So we're going to break in and we're going to read Ezra chapter 8. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to read all of these, these names, so uh, don't, don't worry. There's actually a lot more names here than were listed earlier this morning. So basically what I want you to look at, it says, These are the now, the chief of their fathers, and this is the genealogy of them that went up with me from Babylon in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. And it goes from verse 2, of the sons all the way, and it lists them, lists them, lists them all the way to verse 14. In verse 15, it says, I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava. So this is verse 15. And their abode we in tents three days. And I viewed the people and the priests and found there none of the sons of Levi. So this is the situation. And this is the question I want to ask you this evening. What does it look like to have the hand of God upon you? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What do, you, what do you think of when you think of this man Ezra accounted three times in chapter 7 that the hand of God was upon him? And we might read past that and think, okay, this is like a supernatural thing. Everything was smooth sailing and nothing was going to stop Ezra. That may be true, but that doesn't seem to be how Ezra felt when this was all going on. And we're going to see that in this chapter right here. And I want to ask you in your own life, as you're going through life, do you feel like God's hand is upon you? And if you ask that question, you have to take a step back and ask a different question. What do I think it looks like to have God's hand upon me? This may be a question we've never actually even considered. But we're going to consider it tonight. We're going to think about it. What does it look like? How do we know? So this man, Ezra, gets everything he needs from the king. The authority, written letters, gold, silver, uh, the vessels to take back, uh, access to the treasury. He's, he, can, he can lift up magistrates and judges when he gets back. Uh, they can follow the word of God. He goes through the camp, and if we were to take the time, we're not going to, but if we were, and you can do this on, at home if you would like, though it's its, its own thing. The study of genealogies is something that I don't... Uh, major in, we'll say. But there's guys that do, and praise the Lord for them. And what the guys say is that everyone in this list can be traced back and found in the list that returned originally under Zerubbabel, except for one family. So the interesting thing is that there was a group 80 years ago whose family members decided to go back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. Then there was a group in that same family that decided to stay there. Eighty years later, there comes an opportunity again, and those people that had family members that went back originally are really the ones that are leading this journey back now. So I want to encourage families, uh, it means a lot more now that I have sons, that you have to set a precedent. And you may not see, you know, all these people that went 80 years ago probably are not around today. You may not see the fact that what you have done encourages the rest of your line to follow the Lord, but I hope it motivates you. I hope it motivates you to know that it is the best thing for me to do for my children, for my grandchildren, is that I obey and follow the Lord with the whole heart. These people here, 80 years ago, maybe didn't have that in mind, but we can see the effects that have come about now. 
And so I, I thought it was an encouraging thing that, that, I, that I had come across and uh, that I would share it with you. Like I said, 50,000 under, under Zerubbabel. There's only about 1,500 men listed uh, in this portion here. So uh, substantial uh, condensing, a substantial smaller group that's leaving now. And the one thing that he noticed, as Ezra is about to make this four-month journey, um, he's in charge. He's, he's the guy that everybody's going to look to. Uh, he decides to get everybody camped by the river in tents, and he's going to walk amongst the camp, and he's going to kind of take survey of who is all there and who he's responsible for, uh, something that we see leadership doing often. Um, we need to go and speak to everybody. We need to see who's here, who's ready, what the needs are. So this is what Ezra's doing. And as he's doing this, he notices something. He's getting accounts of all these heads of the families. He's taking note of everyone that's there. And he gets to the very end, and he finds out that they don't have any Levites in the whole camp, not one. Now, we say, well, what's the big deal? Ezra was going back to start a, a spiritual revival, in a sense, to get the people back to, to direct obedience of the Word of God and to teach these statutes. Uh, he's going to need Levites to do that. He, he can't do that himself. So one of the things I want you to, to take away from this, uh, what does it look like to have God's hand upon you? Uh, the recognition that you can't do it by yourself. That's the first thing. Uh, to have God's hand upon you is not to have this attitude that you're going to go and accomplish all these things because God is with me, and if God is with me, then I can do you know, anything I want to do. Um, you have to have this recognition that it's not a one-man show. So Ezra, right away, uh, before they break camp and leave, could you imagine, men? I mean, I know what it's like to leave on a trip. And uh, Kathy did this the other day. I don't know if she's in here, but we, oh, there you are. Yeah. We were leaving for San Diego, and we get a block away from the house, and she's like, oh, I forgot something. And it's like, it's so frustrating to have to, like, turn the car back around and go back 30 seconds to the house to get a very important thing that she did forget and, and get it, you know. But could you have imagined we get all the way to San Diego, and it's like, I forgot this and that. And it's like, well, we ain't going back to get it. So at least, you know, Ezra's doing this in the beginning. He's noticing the fact that he can't do this by himself, and, and he's going to need help, and he's going to need very specific help. So another question we want to ask is, why were there no Levites in the camp? And uh, this is a hard question. Uh, this is a question that will probably affect each of us here if we really think about it. The Levites, as we know, had no inheritance in the land. Their inheritance was the person of God himself. Uh, they were required to live by faith. Uh, they were provided for basically in the hands of all those that worked in the rest of the kingdom. Um, and we would say, sounds like a great thing. In our minds, we would say that. You can imagine after... 80 years in Babylon and, and having uh, certain freedoms now under the Persian government uh, that they have bought land, that they've started families, that they've put down roots. Now all these other people that are in this genealogy are going back to land that belongs to them. They're going back to claim something, something physical, something that they can hold on to. Uh, we think of back in, in Jeremiah's day, uh, Jeremiah is told by the Lord to go and buy a field. 
and he goes and buys a field and he lends it to his, I think it's his cousins, his family of some sort, and we see them come back under Zerubbabel to claim that land that Jeremiah purchased. So these people are all coming back to claim something. The Levites would have been selling everything that they had and leaving everything that they knew to go and be able to inherit and claim nothing physical. So when we think of our life and we think of our ties, our roots, our materials in the world, it would be something to say, I'm going to sell everything I have, give up my work, and, and go and, and live in a place where I can't own anything, and I can't have anything, I can't have any protection. You know, we're, we're in America, we love protection. I mean, you know, everyone has, a, a, you're required to have car insurance, uh, life insurance, you know, health insurance, all, all these things that you, you have to protect yourself, to insulate yourself. Home insurance, uh, you know, you've got your 401Ks, your IRAs, your retirement funds, and none of that is bad. I have all of those things. I'm not like, you know, not that kind of guy. All I'm saying is just think about it. What are we really trusting in? What are we really depending on? And when the rubber meets the road, what are the decisions that we make? And we might see this as this huge, big decision, but we make a lot of small decisions all the time in what we value and where we place the preeminence. How do we gauge that? Well, we gauge that when something bad happens, what's our first thought? Uh, we gauge that when a crisis occurs. We gauge that on a regular evening and um, we know or we come to mind of a brother or sister that's going through some struggles and um, we're too busy to, to give them a call or to go over and see them. Uh, Wednesday night when we meet here for prayer meeting when you know it is nice sitting at home and not coming. Uh, there's all these little things that we do in our life that give evidence and I think God made it this way that give evidence to where we're placing the preeminence. The Levites at the time heard this call, heard what was going on, know this man Ezra, obviously respect this man Ezra of what's going on. They're invited, and they say, no thanks. Does God ever call you to do something and you kind of flippantly just say no thanks not interested I'm a little tired now I don't really feel like going it's going to be hard I don't have any protection I cannot fault any of these Levites I'm guilty of everything that, that they are doing right here I would have been one of those, like, well, I'll pray for everybody that's going, and I'll be lifting them up in prayer. Uh, I'll, I'll put it on my calendar to pray every day for these people that are going back. Um, but I, I don't know that I would be in the camp going. So Ezra has this problem. In his mind, he can't go back to Jerusalem without Levites. So what does he do? What does it look like to have God's hand upon him? 
So it says, I sent for Eliezer, for Ariel, for Shimei, and for El Nathan, for Yarib, and for El Nathan, and for Nathan, and for Zechariah, and for Meshulam, chief men, also for Uriah, and for El Nathan, men of understanding. And I sent them with commandment unto Ido, the chief, at the place Casiphia, and I told them that they should, what they should say unto Ido and to his brethren, the Nethanim, at the place Casiphia, that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. So Ezra basically says, I'm going to get a few men. There's a lot of El Nathans in there. I'm going to get a few men, and I'm going to send them back, men of understanding, men that know what's going on, men that I can trust, to convince these people to come, any of them. Not to force them, but to persuade them. All right? What does that look like for us today? That looks like someone is making a decision. It may not be sinful. It may not be uh, something that, that stands out as uh, you know, a glaring, glaringly wrong decision. But somebody is making a decision uh, that is not spiritually the best decision. And it looks like going over there and persuading them from the scriptures and in prayer to make the right decision. This is something we should be doing all the time. Uh, one of the reasons why we don't do it all the time is because we don't know the decisions everybody's making uh, when they come up. You know, there's this, this thing we do, we, we ask for prayer requests, and when we give prayer requests, we, it, you know, it's kind of embarrassing at times. You have to put yourself out there and uh, say, you know, I, I need help in this. And as Americans, we don't really like to do that. We like to give praise. We like to say, let me tell you what the Lord did. Okay, that's praise. But, you know, I need help finding a job. I need help talking to my neighbor. I need help being kind to my wife. Uh, I need help in dealing with my parents who are lost. Um, I need help in, in dealing with a, a child. How do I raise my child? It's, it's humbling uh, because in our mind, it's a little humiliating uh, that you need something. But this is what it takes. Ezra saw that there was a need, and he went to these men that were making this decision. They may not have thought too much of it, but spiritually, they were making the wrong decision. Think of the opportunity that these men had to serve under a revival that takes place. Out of all the history of the Jewish people, you have these little pockets of revival that take place. Could you imagine to be the one serving when that took place? They were remembered throughout all of eternity. There's going to be names that are put in here of families of Levites that for all eternity, their names will be there. These guys came back. I don't know what the plot of dirt in Babylon would have done for them. Nobody remembers anybody's plot of dirt in Babylon. So, one of the things that I would encourage everyone here is there is a need for honesty, uh, there is a need for humility, uh, there is a need in prayer requests to actually give real prayer requests. And if you don't feel that you have any, um, praise the Lord, I guess, but you probably just need to think about it a little bit more. One of the things we have here is they, they go to this individual, Ezra, 
doesn't just give these people a task, go get me Levites, and, and don't come back until the Levites are, are here. He gives them specifics. Go. Go into this place, see this man, and tell him this. This is what we're after. This is why we're after it. And we need these men to come. And these men go. These men go. <clears throat> and it says in verse 18, And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding, one man, of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah, with his sons and his brethren, 18. Okay, we got 18 here. And Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, his brethren and their sons, 20. We're up to 38. Also the Nethanim, whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim. All of them were expressed by name. So, this seems to be good with Ezra. Ezra sends out the call, these men go, 38 Levites come, basically two, two families and the, the sons of these, these families, and 220 Nethanim. The Nethanim are basically temple servants, uh, what it were appointed under the reign of David. Uh, so, okay, we got some Levites. So what does it look like to have uh, God's hand upon you? It looks like not moving until God provides and just waiting. I have it in my mind that Ezra would have waited until some Levites came. I don't see Ezra leaving the river until the Levites are in the camp. So it looks like sending out the right men, giving them the right instruction, and waiting on God to bring them however long it takes. So that's the first step. Second step, verse 21. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek him, seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. So Ezra realizes something else. <laughs> he realizes they have all of these people, they have all of this money, all of this stuff. They're in a camp, and they have zero protection. No military, no army, no fighting men, nothing. And Ezra has this conflict within himself, and he says, you know, guys, you didn't hear what I told the king. This is what I told the king about our God. I can't tell the king all these great things about our God and then turn around and ask the king for soldiers to protect us. You know, how many of us have been in a situation similar to that? Uh, we got to get this done because you don't understand what I just told him right there. So whatever it takes, we got we to make this happen. Ezra's in a position, and what's interesting is later on, in, we see in Nehemiah, Nehemiah has a, a temple uh, uh, or a kingly escort. He's got guards that take him back. There's nothing against having guards and protection in the scripture. But Ezra had a personal conviction that he wasn't willing to, to let go of. After he had told the king how great God is, he can't go back and ask for protection. God will have to protect them. 
And he doesn't just say, you know, this is what I said, and, you know, maybe I opened my mouth too soon, and we're just going to go. They stop, they fast, and they pray. What does it look like to be entreated of God or to have God's hand upon you? It looks like understanding the complete need we have for God to do all things for us. Ezra was not capable of protecting this band of people, and he knew that. And he knew that the only way it was going to happen was that God was going to protect them. And so he didn't go out just, you know, bold-faced, blindly, okay, God, you, you do it. Uh, there was a time of, of prayer and of fasting. He took it seriously. What does it look like to have God's hand upon you? It looks like you take things seriously. It's one of my favorite little two, two or three verses, actually, in the Old Testament. Uh, this, we never really get to see anything like this. Uh, you kind of read a historical accounts of things like that, but in this you really see what's going on in Ezra's mind. And we can relate to this 100%. I have this with my own parents. I tell them how, how, how I trust in God. I tell them how I try to live by faith. I tell them all these things. Uh, you know, we don't get contracts that come through at work. Kathy gets laid off, and my dad's like, just kind of watching, just kind of waiting. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, Lord. Obviously, I was trusting in this too much. And you're going to have to do something to, to pull me out of it. But it doesn't stop there. It leads to prayer. And so God isn't doing these things in our lives just to make it a hard time for us. Perhaps these, these difficult times are coming in because he wants to bring us back into a close relationship, a relationship where we have communication, a relationship where there's prayer, and a relationship where there's a seriousness in prayer. Um, that's what was going on. So Ezra has everybody fast. What else does it look like? Verse 24. It says, Then I separated twelve of the chief of the priest, some names, and ten of their brethren with them, and weighed unto them the silver and the gold and the vessels, even the offering of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I even weighed unto their hands six hundred and fifty talents of silver, and silver vessels a hundred talents, and of gold a hundred talents, also twenty basins of gold of a thousand uh, drams of two vessels of fine copper, precious as gold. And I said unto them, Ye are holy unto the Lord. The vessels are holy also, and the silver and the gold are freewill offerings unto the Lord God of your fathers. Watch ye and keep them until ye weigh them before the chief of the priests and the Levites and the chief of the fathers of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So took the priests and the Levites the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem unto the house of our God. What does it look like to have God's hand upon you? It looks like you're above reproach. Ezra made it a, a particular point uh, to delegate these things, to delegate it to men that he trusted. And one of the important things when you're going to start any kind of work, any kind of uh, uh, spiritual revival that we see in the scripture that takes place, uh, there's more than one person involved. 
And so he only has, out of you know, the 1,700 men that are there, he chooses 12. This isn't a great number of people. And he has everybody weigh it out. Okay, you have this many, you have this many, you have this many. And he goes through the line. And then he exhorts them, you are holy. And what you possess is holy. And I'm here to tell you all tonight, you are holy. And everything that you have is holy. And whether you've been reminded lately or not, you will one day give an account. There is a perfect record being held. And one day, you've got to justify it. Comes due. Praise the Lord that we have a Father in heaven that has loved us, that has provided all of these things for us that sent his son to die for us, that we could have life, that we could be in his family, that we have an eternal home that our Lord and Savior is busy right now preparing for us as we speak. One day he's going to come again and he's going to take us all to be with him and there's going to be a time when there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more suffering. But we have a life to live here that God's given us too. And he's given us each different things and one day we're going to have to stand before him and everything's going to be weighed. And we're going to have to give a true account. This is something that Ezra does. He doesn't have to do it. He chooses to do it. What does this do? Well, it makes him above reproach, one thing. I don't think anybody would have suspected Ezra of anything. But he does it anyway. And he also equips other people to realize the seriousness of, of what they're going back to. Um, all the things that they were entrusted with, all the free will offerings, uh, they are reminded that they are holy. So we have a count here of Ezra's arrival in Jerusalem. <clears throat> so after all of this takes place, uh, they haven't even left the river yet. They're still there. Uh, so Ezra's going through the checklist. What, what does it look like to have God's hand upon you? Um, it looks like knowing that you can't do it by yourself, that you're going to need other people. It, it looks like you've got to take things seriously, that God wants a relationship, and that we don't just throw things on God, we have a relationship with God, and we take things seriously. And all of these things, it, it means that we're above reproach. Um, these are all the things that Ezra is doing before they even leave Babylon. So as all of these things have been done and everything seems right, they sought the Lord for protection, now they're going to begin their journey. It says, Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go into Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and abode there three days. So again, God's hand upon them. Uh, there, there were dangers. There were people that were lying in wait. Uh, there were people that meant to do evil. But God saw them through. He doesn't always remove every obstacle out of the path. But he always sees you through. One of the things that we have here is uh, it, it, it talked about where they were that they had got to the river, that they had waited three days. Now they got to the twelfth day before they even left. So you see how many days transpired before they took off. 
And it sees, they see, they understand that the only reason they were able to get there was because of God's hand upon them. So and how, what does it look like to have God's hand upon you? Uh, you give credit where credit is due. Uh, Ezra doesn't pat himself on the back and say, you're welcome, everyone, uh, for getting you here. He gives everything to the Lord. So now on the fourth day was the silver and the gold and the vessels weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eliezer, the son of Phinehas. And with him was Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui, Levites, by number and by weight of every one, and all the weight was written at that time. Also the children of those that had been carried away, which were come <clears throat> out of the captivity, offered burnt offerings unto the God of Israel, twelve bullocks for all Israel, ninety and six rams, seventy and seven lambs, twelve he-goats for a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering unto the Lord. And they delivered the king's commissions unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors on this side the river, and they furthered the people and the house of God. <clears throat> so they get there, and after three days, they bring everybody together, and they have everything weighed out. And they make sure that what they had account of was what was being deposited. And I don't know if we can really understand the, the grasp of, of what takes place here. These people that were carried away in captivity, that had never had the opportunity to offer at a temple, to offer a free will sacrifice, to give something to the Lord in the way that he had asked, now all of a sudden have the opportunity to do it. Exactly as the Lord requested. And... I don't know about you, but there, there is this sense of joy that takes place when God gives you the strength to obey his word and to accomplish something, however big or small it may be. One of the things I want to ask you all this evening is, Ezra led a, a small contingent back. And if you just looked at the number of these things that were offered, you would say, I mean, big deal. Solomon offered, you know, however many thousands of things when the temple was first built. Um, the heart that was in these people to finally get to offer in this place in the proper way, I, would only, I could only imagine had the same effect as, as Solomon and finally accomplishing the building of the temple and seeing it dedicated. That same utter joy that would fill a person's heart to know that I'm in complete obedience to God and that he's pleased. To be restricted from that and now to finally have opportunity. Um, I know a little bit of what that's like in a small way. Uh, being raised Catholic, you have certain things that you cannot do, uh, basically everything. Uh, somebody intercedes for you, somebody prays for you, um, somebody does all the heavy lifting, tells you what it says, how it says it, why it says it, um, the sins that you commit, what to do to absolve yourself of those sins, and that uh, this priest is the one that, that forgives you. So 
They tell you when to sit, when to stand, when to kneel, uh, how to genuflect before you get in the pew, how to hold your hands when you pray. Uh, they tell you a great number of things. When I trusted Christ and we came back here after Yosemite to just sit in and silently lift up worship to God for the Lord Jesus and what he has done, I don't know if there's anything that would surpass that sense of joy I felt. And now looking at it, how God would have seen that and how it all would have played out in such a small person like me. I mean, I'm nobody. I'm, I'm just a, another blood-bought saint. No different, no better, no nothing. But to finally have access spiritually and to have opportunity physically. And because of that, I'm willing to put up with a great many things, probably anything. To me, it's a very small idea of what these people experienced. And I, I hope you all don't take that for granted, what we have here. Uh, the breaking of bread and the opportunity that we have, that there's like, unless you were raised in something else, just the joy that comes from it is, is hard to, to really get a hold of. It, it's, it's really remarkable. What does it look like to have God's hand upon you? Uh, it looks like you get right to work. They didn't uh, lounge around and wait for everything to happen. Ezra had a long list of things that he was going to establish. And he got to tell lieutenants and governors and uh, judges and set up all of these things and get them all going. And as he's doing that, it says they furthered the people and the house of God. Uh, to, to have God's hand upon you looks like you're furthering the work for Christ. So whatever notion perhaps we had when we first got here, uh, I hope you can find that uh, maybe it's not as mystical as you thought it was before. Uh, maybe it's not as simple as you thought it was before. Uh, I hope you can appreciate the, the struggle uh, that Ezra went through, that we all go through on a daily basis to have to make decisions. Uh, to realize that God is always watching and that God records these things and he knows what's going on. The opportunities we have with the decisions that we make, with what we've been entrusted with, and to be reminded that we are holy and what we have is holy and it belongs to God. Uh, in chapter 9, immediately after these things take place, all these people come to Ezra. Don't worry, we're not getting into chapter 9. I'm just giving you a preview. Everyone's like this. Don't, don't worry, I know what time it is. We're ending right now. But the sin of the people is weighed down so much that they all come to Ezra and they tell them basically the sins of the people and, and Ezra's response and these things. We have to start somewhere before we end up in the place that God wants us to be. We don't, we don't start where God where we end. It's just not how it works. You hear it all the time with, with young people um, that I run into, everybody wants to be CEO. You know, if you just made me CEO, then everything would be much better. That's not really how it works. You, you start somewhere and you work towards it. 
in the same sense here, Ezra was a man that purposed in his heart uh, to know, to do, and to teach. Uh, he purposed in his heart as a man of conviction uh, to make sure that he lived up to those convictions, that he stood by him. We see that God greatly used him. Um, what's your purpose in life? And can you recognize God's hand upon you? Some questions to think about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee. We do thank Thee for Your Word. Uh, we do thank Thee that we're not alone. Uh, we don't do these things by ourselves. We do thank Thee that You have given us uh, all the heavenly blessings. Uh, Father, we just think of the, the joy of, of being loved so much that You would send Your Son to die for us. Uh, not only to die for us, Father, but to suffer for us, to, to take our sins away, to cleanse us, to bring us into the family and to give us purpose, to give us work. Uh, to give us things to accomplish and, and the ability to, to see them accomplished. Father, it's great joy when we see your hand work in our lives and we pray for great work here uh, in our lives and then through our lives. So we do just lift up all that are here, uh, that we first and foremost would be a humble people, uh, that we would do all things to the glory of thy Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.